Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. We've had a lot of guests on this podcast over the last couple of years, academics and other friends of the Gray Center. But this is a first because it's our first visit with the Gray Center's new co-executive director, my friend and colleague, Jen Mascott. Jen's an assistant professor of law here at the Antonin Scalia Law School. She recently returned to George Mason University from a stint in government, which we'll talk about in a bit. Jen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to chat with you today. Now, we have a lot to discuss, but first, let's just keep things uh, focused on theory. What are you working on these days in terms of your scholarship and what issues out there uh, interest you? Well, with my scholarship, I'm trying to connect up some of the issues that I would have worked on in government with um, things that I was studying before I left or took a break from academia. So one project that I've had on the back burner that I'm looking to restart is building on my Officers of the United States case in the Stanford Law Review. And this follow-up article actually would look at the ratification debates and all of the information they have about mechanisms for keeping the government and officers accountable um, once they start to serve and once they're in office and figuring out a little bit more about who the founders thought were officers and how they were going to stay faithful to their constitutional duty to serve um, the country and to fulfill their constitutional duties. Um, another piece that I'm, a couple of pieces that I'm working on involve the recent Arthrex decision. So uh, Professor John Duffy from UVA and I um, had a proposal accepted by the Supreme Court Review to write about the Arthrex decision and to talk really about how um, there can any longer be room for decisions like Morrison versus Olson that suggest there can be power exercised outside of traditional executive supervision in light of some of the broader language in Arthrex about the need for higher level executive officers accountable to the president to being able to being able to oversee or reverse or weigh in on final executive branch decisions and also take a look at some of the interesting language in the court's opinion that suggests that the court is really starting to conceive of the ability to give instructions on the front end and directions on the front end as a mechanism for executive supervision instead of just relying on the power of removal on the back end. And I guess where we're distilling that from the opinion is really in the remedy that the um, justices settled on when they found that it was an unacceptable constitutional arrangement for judges on an intermediate appeals board to be reaching final decisions for the executive branch. Instead of um, fiddling around with the tenure protections for those judges, the court made sure that the patent director, who's uh, more directly accountable to the Commerce Secretary and then the President, ha- would have the ability to be able to have a say in those decisions, which is a more traditional arrangement for administrative agencies. Um, and then finally, I'm working on a separate piece looking actually at uh, some historical understanding about the proper amount of authority that's delegated to private actors and outside of governmental accountability mechanisms based on some um, examples that came up in the Arthrex briefing dealing with historical arrangements with the patent board and the use of outside experts at one point even to reverse fact findings by uh, the patent commissioner. And what does that mean and how is that consistent with um, the need for supervision of sovereign authority? Let's stay on this for a minute, because I I think back to years ago, I think one of the first times you and I met, actually, before either of us was at George Mason, before you were a professor, 
you were just beginning this project. The, the paper that was published in 2018 in the Stanford Law Review is titled, Who Are Officers of the United States? This really has been the central focus of your work. And I'm just curious if you could think back to those days, what was it that sort of attracted you to this particular issue? I mean, of all the issues that are being debated around the administrative state, the constitutional structural issues and everything else, what was it that, that attracted uh, you to, to this issue? And why do you think it's so important in the administrative state? Yes, that's a great question. And so as far as just what actually initially um, triggered uh, me in thinking about the issue, honestly, was uh, the um, great opportunity I had for a few years to teach administrative law at GW's law school where I attended as a student and got introduced to Gary Lawson's fantastic casebook in administrative law, which really starts from the very beginning and constitutional questions. And um, where is the administrative situated within the constitutional structure. And he notes in the casebook early on all of the complexities and open questions about the meaning of officers of the United States and who these people are who have to be appointed in certain ways. So principle or basically the bottom line default rules, an officer of the United States has to be appointed by the president with Senate consent. At the very end of the drafting debates, the drafting process, um, the drafters put this um, alternative option for folks who are called inferior officers of the United States. They can be appointed by the president alone, a court of law or a head of a department. But we don't really, after all these years, had a lot of case law or anything really on what officers of the United States means. And so Gary points this out in his book. And interestingly, he talked about a 2007 Office of Legal Counsel attempt to define the contours of officers of the United States, which went back and looked at a lot of practice, as as that office tends to do, and some 19th century understandings of the term. Um, and then also talked about case law. And really the most there had really just been two key um opinions by the Supreme Court in the back half of the 20th century on the meaning of officers of the United States. And so it also was an area that's where it seemed like it was kind of ripe for research and that there had not actually been a true originalist pre-ratification analysis done of what the term meant. So because I'm also an originalist and value that historical scholarship, I decided to try to dig in. And some folks at the beginning warned me, tried to warn me off of it, saying it is it is open ended. But I so but I tried to just be sensitive to that in the piece. So I think in sort of an acknowledgement that there's there are a lot of questions to be answered. The piece ended up being (laughs) 120 pages. Um, and there's still more to do. So I would just try to be very upfront about what sources I looked at, what I think we know and what we don't know. But it really seemed as though um, if one's going to take an original public meaning approach to the Constitution, that essentially the understanding at the time was that anybody who was carrying out a statutory duty, so something that Congress had authorized the executive branch to do um, as a as a government official, was appointed um as an officer or was seen as an officer of the United States. Um, and so then I guess that raises the question, which I'm trying to start taking a look at in these follow on projects. Is there the same line um, for who who can exercise authority as a private official? So the court's modern cases, like in Lucia, which was decided also in 2018, interestingly, and happily for me around the time I was writing on this, um, Lucia suggests that um, and notes that officers were people in continuing positions. And so I guess the question that I'm curious about, and I think the answer is clearly no, is that 
is it, or, or, or actually depending on the way you ask the question, I guess I should say maybe the answer is yes. Anyway, the, the issue is if you move outside of that government official position and you're somebody who's engaged in a task, but you're just hired to do so by the government or um, selected as an outside expert, is there the same line? Can, can like, And clearly that can't be the same line, right? Because obviously there are people who are hired to perform services that are authorized by statute. And this has been going on from the very beginning um, of the first Congress. And so what's the dividing line between what can be delegated outside of the accountability of the governmental structure? On one hand, I think those of a small government types might think of it as a very positive thing to have private actors do more. But if these private actors are doing things that then have governmental consequences, is there a problem because they would be acting outside of the constraints of the appointments clause and presidential supervision and without perhaps the same um, constitutional oath responsibilities as an officer of the United States? And so I'm just getting started on this, but it seems to me, actually, that the line is probably different and probably depends on whether what these individuals are doing, at least from the beginning, actually involves exercising a piece of the delegated sovereign authority of the United States. So if they're just experts or even if they're coming up with arbitration type decisions, but the decision's not effective and not binding on the public until a government official signs off on it, that seems to be at least up until the mid 19th century. Okay. But you don't see people um, necessarily like reversing in a final way, um, binding governmental decisions. But we'll see. So that's sort of what I'm exploring. Um, and I'm just, as I say, kind of getting started on that. And that uh, to really answer the question will probably be uh, quite a long time in coming. But I may write a just a shorter historical snapshot of what was going on in the mid um, 19th century. Uh, in a little bit more shorter um, time frame. Well, it's all obviously been a fruitful area of research. The paper you've already written or the papers you've already written and the ones yet to come and, and the Stanford piece itself has been cited a few times in Supreme Court concurring opinions. So obviously you've, you've struck an intellectual nerve and, and it's very interesting to see where all this is headed. You've had a couple of government appointments of your own, so to speak. You recently served in the Justice Department uh, in a few different capacities. Uh, as Associate Deputy Attorney General and Deputy Assistant Attorney General, Office of Legal Counsel. You might need to unpack the difference between those two offices. I always uh, stumble. <laughs> yeah, lots, lots of words and titles at DOJ for sure. Yeah, but well, let's just keep it simple then. Uh, when did you go to DOJ? Uh, why did you go to DOJ? And what did you do there? Well, I, I've always been interested in government service. And I was really happy right out of law school to be able to um, – you know, due to clerkships to be within the judiciary and prior to law school work for a number of years on Capitol Hill and would have um, wanted to do government service even earlier. But I uh, we have four um, still relatively young children. We have four children within a six year time period. So during that time period was really when I sort of thought about and kind of embraced more of the academic track and tried to um, get that up and running. And so after getting settled, um, there was a little bit more of an opportunity to possibly then think about uh, government service, which, you know, as you uh, know, or wouldn't be surprising, um, you know, tend to be maybe more demanding jobs or at least have a much more regular, uh, rigorous schedule than, you know, if one's an academic kind of writing or teaching on their own um, time frame. And so uh, 
I, I went into the government in April 2019. Um, there was an opening at that point for a deputy assistant attorney general spot in the Office of Legal Counsel. And uh, the Office of Legal Counsel is the office within the Department of Justice, within the executive branch, really, that's seen as uh, being responsible for analyzing all of the constitutional questions. So if one thinks about the executive branch and the president having his or her own duty to interpret the Constitution and evaluate uh, what the constitutional contours of his or her role is, uh, those questions basically uh, get pinged to OLC. And the reason that they do is because um, from the first Congress, the attorney general had by statute been authorized to answer legal questions for the president. And over time, that role actually was delegated to the attorney or the assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel. And then it gets delegated down one more uh, level for the deputies, you know, acting, of course, under supervision of the AAG and the AG um, and ultimately the president to um, try to exercise that authority or that responsibility and answer questions. And then the Office of Legal Counsel also acts almost as an adjudicator informally. Sometimes if there are different executive branch agencies who have competing views or different questions about uh, what a statute is authorizing them to do. So we get the Office of Legal Counsel gets questions like that. Um, you know, if two statutes perhaps seem to conflict or agencies have different ideas, uh, what's the right answer? And so we might deliver this advice in the form, you know, informally by phone, or email, or most formally and famously in um, opinions or, or memos that are then, you know, published and put up on the DOJ website. And so, you know, during the end of the Trump administration, of course, those opinions might range anywhere from a little bit more mundane issue of statutory interpretation. So I looked at a question dealing with uh, the Department of Transportation, for example, and the Commerce Clause, or the Compact Clause of all things, that I'm sure nobody would ever but me want to take the time to... <laughs> The time to read all the way to more, you know, pressing questions of our time, like questions that came up during the impeachment process are, are answered on that site. You know, withdrawing from various um, international agreements. How does that operate? Um, contours of oversight. You know, uh, do, what kind of power does the president have unilaterally to engage in military action? Um, all of those kinds of questions are ones that, you know, the assistant attorney general for OLC would be would be asked and has publicly addressed on the uh, on on the DOJ website there. So I was I was there for most of I would say most of my time at DOJ um, the, the summer of 2020. The deputy attorney general at the time, uh, Jeff Rosen, um, I, gave me the opportunity to come on board on his staff as an as, as one of his associates um, so basically a deputy to him and uh, that was also a great role because I got to see more components of the Department of Justice so OLC is really its own shop and is probably the shop there that's the closest to academia where you're sort of sitting there trying to puzzle through constitutional questions. Um, the DAG's office was a lot more sort of policy driven or, or forward focused. And so some of the issues I had the chance to touch on there might have involved some re you know, regulatory issues to the extent they get pinged to DOJ or come up in possible executive orders, um, reg reform issues to, to um, 
being involved in the federal programs branch, which is the um, part of the civil division that's responsible for defending all of the challenges against the government. So that was really fascinating as an ad law scholar, con law scholar, to be kind of inside looking at what the government's arguments are um, when somebody's coming after the government and claiming actions illegal. And then uh, working with um, you know, some of our administrative adjudicative components, like the Executive Office of Immigration Review, um, which was very fascinating, again, because um, as the adjudicators within DOJ, that also raised a lot of um, pure, sometimes pure ad law issues and questions. Um, and then also at various times might have worked on issues related to the SG's office, um, Homeland Security. Um, and then at the very end, I split time between the DAG's office and the Office of Legal Counsel for the last two months when there were just a number of, um, there was an opening again in OLC, and then there were just a number of questions percolating toward the end. Uh, many, the ones I worked on were largely statutory interpretation questions, some related to the pandemic, um, and just a need to kind of, um, you know, try to tie up a lot of loose ends. And so I was sort of wearing both hats there for a few weeks at the end, which might have been the most fun time, actually, at DOJ. So by the time you arrived at Justice, you'd already spent many years thinking about the Constitution, thinking about executive power, and you'd, you know, analyzed constitutional issues as an academic, as a researcher, as a, even in private practice. I'm just curious, you suddenly find yourself at the Justice Department, doing constitutional analysis and, and helping, you know, the Justice Department's oversight of a sort over the rest of, of the administrative agencies, at least when those issues come to justice. When you think back to that experience, I mean, did that shape at all the way you think about executive power or about constitutional analysis, or or or, or did you basically leave with the same, you know, a, a approach that you arrived with? Well, I mean, I, 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 I think, and I hope this is true really for, for most people in government. I mean, I think I and the, you know, the people that, I, well, at first, let me start with the people that I serve with. I mean, I should just say, whether we're talking about career folks or political appointees, the attorneys at the Department of Justice that I had the honor to work alongside or for are just some of the best attorneys across, you know, at, across the country. Very, very smart. And basically, to a person, I found them all dedicated, really, to trying to um, unpack in the best way they knew how uh, what the right answer is under the rule of law. And just had a wonderful experience with people and um, their high level of service and commitment to trying to get the answer right. And just collegial atmosphere for the most part. And uh, have a, just a lot of respect for the folks that I worked with who have left and then those who are still there. And so it was it was great. Now, on the theory side of it, I mean, I, I think this is true for a lot of my colleagues. I, I mean, no, I think I would take the same perspective as a theoretical or interpretive matter of first principles, leaving government as I did going in. Um, and we can talk more about sort of what that is later on in the interview. I think how it informed my perspective a little bit was particularly with teaching administrative law, just understanding a little bit more what goes into some of the decisions or the regulation or the back end process so that it's not just theory, but you see people carrying it out and some of the challenges and, and, and tough questions that are answered. And also the number of people that are involved in touching an issue and getting a policy to, to, um, 
to its final stage and getting it out the door. Um, you know, I, I, I think I might have become a little bit more um, of a realist, perhaps, about, you know, executive power and the executive branch as an institution in the sense that you sort of, when you go in, you know, if your perspective is you're an executive branch lawyer and so you're serving the American people, you're serving the Constitution, you're serving the executive branch, you just start to see all of the institutional pressures or factors that come to bear on the executive branch, sort of protecting its prerogatives, whether it's, you know, Chevron deference, our deference or whatever. And I think it's really a real question as an executive branch lawyer, what role you are to play. And you, you know, you start to see that it's possible, you know, when you're there, that given the state of the law, you know, you should use tools in the toolkit in a way that maybe outside when you're trying to answer a different question, should those tools exist, you might come at it a little bit differently. And so I guess if I had any doubt before, I would now feel more certain that if, if, if anybody is of the view that the balance, for example, between Congress and the executive or the federal and state level is not the same as it was in first principles at the founding, certainly one should not be turning to the executive branch itself to fix it, right? Just like it, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like we can turn to Congress maybe to fix it. But, you know, one has to figure out a way more systemically, I think, to um, change the authority that Congress is willing to give to the executive before getting upset about how the executive uses this vast amount of authority that's just being given because Congress doesn't really want to take responsibility for various decisions. Maybe some of these themes will be returned to at the Gray Center's conference on October 1st on, on presidential administration. Um, we'll have a lot to discuss that day. But let's, so let's, let's turn back to, to your return to, to George Mason. So you, you finish up at the Justice Department in January of this year, January 2021, come back to the law school, you resume teaching, research, and writing. But in addition to all of that, you've, you've decided to, to, to join us as the new co-executive director so I'm very excited about the, about your arrival and about the programs that you've been thinking up and, and some that we're really beginning to plan. So I'm just curious, uh, or maybe the, the listeners are, are more curious than, than me since I already know some of this. Uh, what sort of programs do you have in mind for the future? Or maybe more broadly, why did you decide to, to join the, the Gray Center as co-director? Oh, well, Adam, it's to get a chance to work with you. How could you ask a question like that? No, working with you is a delight. It's great. I mean, the Gray Center has been doing fantastic things ever since Naomi Rao, now Judge Rao, founded it. And so just in general, I'm a huge fan of the Gray Center's mission to look closely at where administrative agencies fall within the constitutional structure and the model of bringing academics from a variety of disciplines, ad law, con law, Fed courts, statutory interpretation together to look honestly at these questions and have always found everybody to be very thoughtful and collegial and represent a wide range of views. And I'm very grateful to the um, to the uh, huge range of scholars who have been willing to come and participate in conversations over the years. And I'm just thrilled about the chance to continue participating in those now um, that I'm back. Uh, and, and so that's the first thing. Uh, as far as my role in the process or new things that we're trying to take on, um, 
some of it's programming and then some of it is we're going to be opening um, a new opportunity for students, a separation of powers clinic. The plan is to open it this spring. And so to enable students to work on some of the issues that we're talking about and studying at the Gray Center in a more specific way, and also to possibly be able to bring some of the issues that I've been studying in scholarship appointments, clause removal, um, get students working on those from a litigation practical standpoint. Um, and then also trying to um, continue to do more classes, bring in great outside folks to help uh, teach along with me at the law school on some really important issues of our time. So Justice Kavanaugh joined us this summer, talk about the Supreme Court term, and he's been actually teaching at Scalia Law um, himself. So I'm really just a it's just great for me to be able to join into something fantastic that's already been going on there for, for um, several years. And then uh, Justice Thomas will come back to the school this spring to teach again on some of the foundations of the administrative state. And then in the fall, kind of building toward the spring separation of powers clinic, um, I've been teaching a um, or just started teaching a new separation of powers from the political branches seminar with my former boss, um, former AAG for OLC, Steve Engel, and talking to students about the um, interaction, particularly between the executive branch and Congress, um, with some modern applications of that and how that's playing out in real time. And do we have the balance right? And how does this compare to the constitutional role for each branch? And that leads into some of the programming then that I'm hoping to bring or, or initiate in addition to the great things you already have planned. Um, so one thing we've already announced is just more um, kind of calendar specific, and that's Justice Thomas's 30-year anniversary on the bench is coming up. So having a big conference with the Heritage Foundation on October 21st, have a number of panels talking about his approach to constitutional interpretation, separation of powers, and some of the other um, great principles that we've learned from his jurisprudence over the years. And then in the spring, hope to build on that by getting scholars together, perhaps to write pieces on their view from a wide variety of perspectives on his jurisprudence, how it's either been consistent or changed over the years and what its lasting impact will be. And then the other um, event that uh, hoping to get off the ground for the spring as well. And so we'll be reaching out to folks, but you and I have informally talked about it, Adam, is an event actually specifically looking at what are the tools that Congress has to be able to more assert its will in the policymaking arena. So I think the debate most recently in the academic arena or in the courts has been the issue of delegation doctrine. And is there just a constitutional problem with Congress sometimes passing laws that are so broad that the executive does not have clear standards uh, hemming in how he or she is to govern. And so, you know, unfortunately, I think the court and the Gundy decision several years ago suggested that there's still resistance perhaps to reexamining this line. I think a number of justices want to look at it. They haven't quite settled on what the alternative test would be for how we would know um, what the standard is that we need to apply, that the court would apply to Congress. And so perhaps, you know, folks might be discouraged that maybe there's not going to be a lot of budging on this since the delegation doctrine has only been applied um, very rarely over time as a constitutional constraint by the court. But are there other mechanisms or ways or things institutionally we can impact Congress or make sure it has the resources on its own to be um legislating with more rigor and more specificity and constraining on um, the discretion of you know, agencies and ultimately the executive who right now um, has a lot of power. 
and our system and folks on all, both sides of the aisle. And I think all sides of the academic spectrum sometimes express concern with the uh, breath or use of that power in different ways. And so maybe we all need to kind of put our heads around how we can get Congress to really be more vigorously taking action moving forward. Yeah, that's been a theme of the Gray Center since the very beginning. I remember going to the conference that Naomi Rao organized when she was director uh, on Capitol Hill. We've done a few events on Capitol Hill over the years, looking at Congress's tools. We did a roundtable this spring focused on Congress's power of the purse, and some papers will be coming out from that roundtable in, in, in upcoming months. I don't think it's a coincidence, actually, that, that there's been so much recent academic interest in Congress's power of the purse. We think of Jillian Metzger's recent article in the Columbia Law Review, and Matthew Lawrence has had a couple of pieces at Columbia and elsewhere on power of the purse. I think it's going to be a huge issue. And so I'm, I'm excited about all of these programs that we're going to do, especially beginning with the, the conference on Justice Thomas with the Heritage Foundation. You clerked for Justice Thomas, in addition to clerking for then-Judge uh, Kavanaugh. And maybe we'll close with this. Um, when you think back to not just your time working for Justice Thomas and now teaching with him, but also just as a student of his his constitutional analysis over the year, how do you think about his contribution to constitutional law overall? Um, and do you have any sort of favorite memory of, of him, either during your clerkship or elsewhere as, as in his, his time as a justice? Well, constitutional law, I mean, I think Justice Thomas over the years has just played an essential role, really, um, for the court and for the country. And I think for history, really, and for the American people in looking very honestly and very closely from a first principle standpoint about if we peel back all the layers over time and all the cases that have come down at the end of the day, if we go back to the very beginning, what is it that the Constitution is authorizing the federal government to do or not? What constraints are there on the exercise of power? What protections for individual liberty? And so whether it's in writing a very strong concurring opinion or dissenting opinion or a majority or just even, you know, as a clerk, knowing his um, internal deliberations um, or changes or suggestions that he might be making in other folks work. Um, you know, he always wants to ask that question in addition to knowing, you know, what the answer is on the precise question being raised by the party before him in the cert petition and the right answer under um, all of the court's precedent. And it's just very valuable um, for him to do that and really important whether one um, believes that however one believes the doctrine of stare decisis should be applied in knowing um how the answer would have been been provided at the very beginning and where are we in relation to that today, even if the answer in that particular case is to give the answer based on case law or the narrower answer to the question. And so I think his ability to really put in the time and rigor to do all those separate writings is just going to have and already has had historical value of unmeasurable, immeasurable importance and was really proud to be um able to play a very, very small um, role in that as one of four clerks for him in, you know, one year at one point in time. Um, and what my me greatest memory, I guess, that sticks out for me is really just more of an experiential across the board thing, which is his, you know, humility um, and integrity and how he tries to convey that and insist on that really from 
law clerks. And so when you go into his chambers and try to serve in this enterprise of, um, you know, looking at what the Constitution's saying or laws are saying in any given matter, um, there's really a call to not be self-important or not be too worried about what one's own individual thought is or contribution or sentence written on the page, but that, you know, collectively we're all trying to get at the best answer. And so the clerks are really encouraged uh, through procedures in his office and then just even through, um, you know, just his personal encouragement to really work well together to um, get each other's input and counsel and uh, there's just a wonderful sense of energy and a r- wonderful collegial sense there um, in working each together each with each other as a team and then also working with the justice. And, you know, it can also have its challenges because, you know, you have four people sometimes as clerks who all want to try to get together a good uh, product to be able to propose or discuss with the justice. And it can be you know, it can be hard sometimes to be told that your idea might not be the best idea out of the four. And, you know, that you need to be learning from these others who have much better ideas. And I happen to work with some very smart, um, industrious co-clerks. So for sure, <laughs> for sure, their ideas often were better than than my own. And um, I don't I just took a lot away from that and find it as sort of a call to excellence now in my current work. And um, on my better days, I'm certainly fall far short of this, but on my better days, try to go back and uh, you know, reflect on that and, um, you know, try to learn from the justices. Great ability to not be self-important and just treat everybody um, the way he would want to be treated. And just one final thing I'll say, um, you know, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy recently had a symposium on Justice Thomas, and some folks have been highlighting a wonderful uh, point from Nicole Garnett's, Professor Nicole Garnett's piece on the justice and how his essence is really this idea that there's never anybody more important than the person in front of you. And it's just remarkable for somebody like him who came from such need at the beginning of his life, a life to now being on the highest court of the land, his humility and his desire to know everyone and care for them as a person. And you can just, if you meet the justice face-to-face, sense that energy. He cares about you as a person. He wants to know people. And he um, he's just a really tremendous um, individual. Well, I'm looking forward to the event on October 21st. And I know students will be looking forward to class in the spring. Uh, Jen, we're out of time. I should just note for our listeners that in addition to being uh, co-executive director, you'll now be co-podcast host, and you'll be uh, hosting episodes of this podcast from from time to time. I'm looking forward to those. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us for this episode. Thank you, Adam. Have a lovely day. You too. And thanks, as always, to our audience for tuning in. Uh, if you like this episode, as, as always, please leave a review and give us a rating and tell friends. Until next time, this is Gray Matters. <laughs>